want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD, coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released Abolitionist Teaching Workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting quetzalec.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com. And if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a 5% discount on their Abolitionist Teaching PD series. Once again, you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their Connect With Us page. Two dope teachers and a mic. We are merely two public school educators who are exploring what's going on in education. And more than anything, we just want to we want to remix this conversation on race, power, and learning as it lives for all of our communities across the country. Um, if you are a first-time listener, um, welcome, welcome to Two Dope Nation. We have open borders at Two Dope Nation. Uh, we allow anybody to come up in here and be a citizen and vote. Um, and uh, welcome. You can follow us on social media at Two Dope Teachers. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook if we have any Facebook generation people. Um, you can also send us an email, uh, Two Dope Teachers at gmail.com. And if you really, really are feeling the work that we do, you can support us uh, by going to patreon.com slash Two Dope Teachers, where for $15 a month, you get a sticker by the homeboy Sham, a uh, local young street artist here in Colorado um, who made that. Uh, we're going to have swag coming out at some point as soon as um, as soon as I survive stats. Um, this will be a good thing. Um, but yeah, we are out here doing our thing. I'm so excited about our guest that we are bringing on today. So uh, I haven't really talked about this on the show yet because me and Kevin can't schedule ourselves um, to save our lives. But a couple weeks ago, I was in Bakersfield, California, the Inland Empire. I was out there. I got a chance to do a little uh, spotlight session that was super fun. And when I was there, so I kind of like dragged myself out of bed and I was like, okay, well, they got breakfast. I better go down and get that breakfast because um, you know how it is. And I get down there and there's an and there's like going to be this opening performance. And I, I didn't want to miss it because I love poetry. 
And I think that seeing that is amazing. And this poet tore it up. <laughs> like I was, I wasn't awake. And then I was awake. It was a beautiful thing. And so I think I followed you around the conference for like the rest of the day and um, and somehow convinced you to come on the show. I want to welcome um, poet performer, uh, poet queen, I think is, is what we're going to go with right here. Valen Lyric Turner, welcome to Two Dope Teachers and a Microphone. Thank you. I'm so stoked to be here. I'm so excited. It's great. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just remember really um, the piece that you did and, uh, you know, maybe we can get you to to do a piece before uh, we finish recording here, because I think really to hear it is uh, is a beautiful thing. Um, so um, this is a podcast about education. Um, so I, I really want to ask you, um, so what kind of student were you? Yeah. In like, <laughs> like K through 12. Like, to. like it's somewhere just you, you like not all of it because that's a, that's a lot of time. Yeah. But like, at, at some key moment, like, what kind of kid was was Valen? I have to be so honest. I was a total teacher's pet. I mean, <laughs> that, like that was who I was. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I was super. So you would have been you would have been the kid that was telling on me. A hundred percent. They'd be like, um, they'd be like, who launched that piece of wood across the room? And you would be like, it was him. It was, it was him right right there. I saw right. the whole thing. It was him. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> I was a total teacher's pet. I was I was super plugged in um, always like from from yeah. uh, from elementary school on. I was always doing the extracurriculars available to me. I was student council president in the fifth grade. That was like Yo. my crowning moment <laughs> of elementary school. Um, and my biggest dream in K-12 was to speak at my high school graduation. Um, So that was, and it happened. It obviously happened, right? And it happened. And that was the kind of student I was. I was just, I was, school was kind of my life in a way. I, I, I feel really privileged for that to have been my experience. Yeah. Yeah, That, that was me. I was, I was a total teacher's pet and I was super, super plugged in. Yeah. That's, that's great. I love it. I love when people are honest because what, what happens sometimes is people try to perpetrate in front, right? Where they'll be like, Mal was so bad. I yeah. was such a bad kid. And it's like, man, like uh, you are at Dartmouth. You're not, you weren't a bad kid. Stop it. Stop it right now. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and I'm really glad that you mentioned the piece about, um, about privilege and how, you know, kind of you felt really positioned to be this successful student. What was it that positioned you to be a student who was just locked in and, and really just engaged in the learning process? Uh, well, family support was huge. Um, uh, I was um, lucky enough to just to have um, a really solid household and um, people that could pick me up and, and take me places I needed to go for school and parents and siblings that would study with me and, and, and wanted me to succeed. And also I was, I was raised in Gwinnett County, Georgia. So yeah. it's a bit North of Atlanta and it's um, uh, one of the largest and wealthiest school districts in the state. Um, so the public schools in Gwinnett, um, are really, really strong and have a lot of resources. Um, so I was sort of positioned, um, in a good spot in that way. 
Um, and that was intentional. That was when we moved to Georgia, that was my mom's um, prerogative was find the best public schools that we can. Um, and that's where I ended up. So I think that was sort of the foundation for it. Yeah. That's dope. Uh, for those of you who um, maybe aren't immediately aware of who I'm talking to, um, if you go to my our Instagram story, uh, I, although it may not be there anymore, there may be posts at this point, uh, Valen and I are tearing it up at the photo booth um, towards the end of the conference. I really think that those were good photographs. Um, the poses were fire. They were fire. They were fire. Um, so I want to... Um, I want to kind of get into your life as a spoken word poet. You have a really great story about how you actually got into doing spoken word. Will you share that with us? Totally. A hundred percent. It's great such story, a y'all. It's a great story. <laughs> it's, it's such a silly story to me um, uh, because it all stemmed from a total just like misunderstanding, a total, <laughs> a total fluke um, and ended up in like one of the you know biggest parts of my life. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I did a poetry competition in high school called Poetry Out Loud. Um, it's a great organization sponsored by the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, it's really big in Georgia and uh, it's a recitation competition. So it's all published poetry that students just get up, they memorize it, they recite yeah. it and sort of evaluated on sort of memorization, dramatic appropriateness and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, I did it all throughout high school. I was in love with it. I um, finished first in the state my junior year of high school and uh, traveled to DC for the national competition uh, yeah. to represent Georgia, um, which was sick, which was so much fun. Oh man. Um, uh, and uh, there was an article about the competition about um, uh, me going to represent Georgia in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the AJC. Um, and somebody from my school district from Gwinnett County Public Schools, GCPS, um, got wind of the article and was like, oh my gosh, like this great poet, like we're organizing this conference. And they reached out to me, they're like, we're organizing this conference, can you come speak to us? Can you come deliver some slam poetry? Can you give us some inspiration? And I was like, um, I am doing like Edgar Allan Poe. Like I, like, I like, am- You know, I didn't write that poem, right? You know, I didn't write right. that. I'm like, the whole point of this competition, it's, it's all published poetry, mostly dead poets. Um, and um, I, I totally didn't, I did not write spoken word at the time, um, but they reached out and asked me to come to this conference. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not actually, I don't write my own poetry. And they were like, oh, well, uh, could you try? <laughs> But if you did, if you did, would right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and so I was like, sure, right? And so they totally took a chance on me and asked me to write a poem about just a teacher that was influential in my life. They really wanted that a student perspective mm. uh, for the inspiration. This was a, a conference called the Summer Leadership Conference in, in Athens, Georgia. Yeah. Um, and it's for uh, not County Public Schools, mostly like administrators and sort of that, you know, upper level like leadership yeah. education. And, um, and so I wrote it about my fifth grade teacher who is still like a really present mentor for me now. Um, and, and it, and it, it really, it went super well at the conference and it really stuck with folks and had a lot of great conversations afterward. Um, and it just kind of launched me into this new realm of, of poetry and of like career that I didn't really anticipate. Um, and, and it just kind of stuck and I just kept getting invited to other conferences to write more pieces and um, it kind of spiraled from there, but it was a total fluke at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's amazing because I think in a lot of ways it really does illustrate 
um, how creativity manifests in people. Like sometimes you fall in love with something. You're like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to pursue it. I'm going to build all my skills and I'm going to learn all the techniques and all this kind of thing. But sometimes the art finds you. Yeah. And it sounds like the art found you. It totally um, found me. It, yeah. So how much of this was like, so, you know, in your biography, which, which we shared at, at the top, um, you also are a theater artist, a songwriter and an activist. So where does, where does spoken word position itself among those other things? Did it lead to the other things? Were mm. you doing the other things before or mm. to what extent did it did this kind of prove to be a launch for what you were going to be doing? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think spoken word was sort of the gateway to activism for me. Gotcha. Um, oh, activism. I've, yeah, I've I've always been a theater artist. I've always been a songwriter. I say always. I have a song book from like kindergarten that oh I oh my god that's in amazing. my backpack everywhere. I've been writing songs. Oh, yeah, you've always been a song. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. at least since kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, and when uh, I always tell the story of like, when I was young, I, I, I lived in Houston, Texas, and um, uh, we had uh, this loft um, on our second floor where uh, it was just, it was kind of like a, just a raised platform. Um, there was a raised platform in the loft that was like, probably like a foot off the ground. And I don't know why it was really there or what purpose it served, but whenever like relatives would come over, I would like sell tickets for like a variety show that I would perform in the loft um and I would, like seeing Tina Turner and like drag my yeah. siblings in to like do skits I was like three years old at this time that's, oh my god that's and, I think that's my favorite thing I've heard this month yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um it was so obnoxious and so great and my mom um because she noticed this pattern of every time people would come over I would do this she hung curtains on the side of that raised platform in the loft and like no. stage um and so she totally like um, just nurtured it from day just one nurtured it for me um so I've always been performing it's kind of just been in my nature yeah. um yeah. but spoken word is I think what led me to activism because um after I did that first poem I realized that spoken word was really cathartic for me hmm. um and and so is songwriting and so is uh acting and performing but it's spoken word is something that like really connects people in a way that I like, haven't hmm. experienced before with other art forms. Yeah. Um, and I'm so, I'm always, I ache for human connection and wow. like, um, and, and I find that it, it's so fruitful with spoken word and it's so healing to me. And, hmm. um, and ever since I did that first one, I kind of have started using spoken word as like, almost like, like, like a diary. Sure. Like, it's just sort of how I, and, and this is true of songwriting too, I think for me, is sort of how I process like really difficult stuff and how I process my emotions. Um, and I think I've, I think I've kind of always been that way. It's like whatever art form it is, like that's how I express myself. Um, and I don't know if I would survive without it. Yeah. But in like 2020, um, when the whole world turned upside down, I really turned to spoken word, really just to process what was going on for myself. Yeah. Um, and I ended up uh, writing a poem uh, uh, for a rally um, in Marietta, Georgia called Bleeding Red, White, and Blue. Um, and 
and and and that was like a really cathartic experience that like again was not intentional I didn't intend for it to lead into this world of activism but it totally did um but mostly because I enjoyed it so much and it was such a good uh uh, way to process what was going on for me um so it's really it's really I don't want to use the word convenient, but it's really, it works really well that like, it's one, how I process my emotions and two, how I move through the world and sort of like accomplish my mission. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. I, no, I love that so much because I think that um, part of, part of aspiring to an activist sort of community and life is how we communicate with each other. Right. And and I think there's a really rich rhetorical tradition when it comes to activism, you know, in this country, especially um, that that you connect to. And like when we think of when we think of the great um, the great sort of charismatic speakers, um, we think of folks who 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 just had this power with words. And um, yeah, the, the, so it's interesting because that was. Um, was not an answer I expected, but I think it's really interesting because I mean your your work and you know I th- I, th- I think we've got you to to do a piece that you know um, on this show y- your work is really transparent and it really does come from the heart and it really does come from a really honest place like there there are these lived experiences that are kind of embedded there. Do you ever feel any hesitation about kind of sharing the stuff that you do? Or is it, I mean, you mentioned being a performer from a really early age and just kind of really being energized by humans, by other people. Yeah. Um, but are there things that as you sort of work through them, you're like, uh, I don't know if this is what I want to Yeah. That's another really great question. Um, uh-huh. uh, I don't, I'm, I don't think I hesitate very much yeah. um, because I, 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 I am so used to like, putting something on the page and then speaking it out loud. And I've been really lucky to like have, have had an, a really nurturing audience to do that for a really long time. And people who like want to hear what I have to say. And it started with my parents, you know, and they could have shut that down when I wanted to do variety shows for my relatives when I was three years old. Like they totally could have redirected. Energy. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it was welcomed. And ever since then, I've just, pretty I I don't know what to do when when um when I can't share like when I can't share what I've written and what I'm I don't know processing like lyrically yeah um I I think most of what I write I hope to share at some point um which is strange because it is like a diary but I still kind of want to share my diary <laughs> yeah. um, just put it into the space and say like this is here do with it what you will you know and it, and it doesn't have to go anywhere it doesn't have to do anything but sometimes I find that especially with music and poetry we're never alone in whatever it is that we're experiencing and like yeah. sometimes what sometimes your diary will move something in somebody else yeah and um and I so I, I think for that reason I've never I, I don't really hesitate but that comes from being really supported and really nurtured yeah it it sounds sounds like there's definitely um an environment that you were in growing up that was like yes show up yeah 
show up yeah. as who you are is what you are. And, you know, I think about that as a parent and, um, you know, my daughter is going to graduate high school this year. She goes to an arts school um, here in town. And, um, and I think about my spouse and this kind of moment when she saw our kid at, you know, two, three years old, you know, just, just wanting to draw on all the paper that she saw and, and deciding that let's get this kid into art classes. Let's, let's put up the stuff that she's doing. And now she's just doing this stuff that's just wicked. And I'm biased. I'm a proud papa, obviously. But when I look at the way that she can just effortlessly create things, it's just incredible. And one thing that you said that really resonates with me a lot, and I think I've shared with you my own sort of my own conflict with with sharing my work and getting my work out there and that kind of thing is that it serves these two kind of purposes for you like that the the energy that you get from being in community is really obvious just you know when you were doing your piece at the beginning of that conference there was a mo and and I think this is what's great when when you're around performers who just really seek that connection because there was definitely a moment where um, where it was like that energy was going both ways, right? So you were energizing us and I was sitting at the driest table in the room <laughs> and you were energizing us and it looked like some of the energy was reflecting back to you. And, you, and so I think that stuff is really beautiful because, you know, a lot of this stuff, it doesn't have to be created in isolation. And then the other thing is needing a place to make sense of the things that are happening around you. Um, what grade grade were you in when COVID shutdown happened? Um, I was a freshman in college. Freshman in college. So you had just finished high school. Wow. So you're in this uh, in this college class of people that hasn't really had a normal year um, <laughs> in the traditional. Maybe this year. Maybe, Maybe we're hoping for this year. <laughs> I mean, hoping it is. It is about to be fall, and uh, we'll see what happens with that. But yeah, so I mean, so the power of both wanting to process what you're experiencing and wanting it to wanting to do it in community is it's it's incredible, and it's and it's obvious, and it's not right for everybody, but. Um, but it's two things that you don't necessarily always see working together. Well, I think it's a testament to just what you were what you were saying about what your daughter too is just like nurturing what like nurturing each other's passions like that's why I can do it in community and like I don't know I think there's something special about like noticing noticing that she wants to scribble on everything and noticing that she's drawing and being like let's cultivate that you know like let's really hone in on that and I think that's a way that I mean I mean just to connect it to my experience in education like that is I think one of the keys to like really, really connecting with students, like with young people is like paying attention to what, like what's, you know, really like lights their fire, you know, and like cultivating that instead of trying to like always redirect the energy. Like I, 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 I worked for a few weeks as a volunteer at this elementary school in uh, my hometown. Um, and, and I, I remember I was working, I was working in the kindergarten hallway. I was a, a sort of language liaison for English language learners. Um, and, um, and I remember always seeing the student outside of his classroom it was a young black kid. It's like probably like six years old. And he was like, almost every time I saw him, he was outside of the classroom with an administrator or the principal or somebody just like really just, put out. yeah, 
almost every time I saw him, it was him outside of the classroom with some adult that was upset with him. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't working specifically in that classroom, but there was just something that drew me to this kid. And um, I asked about him one day and I was, and I was just like, what, like, what's going on? And um, his teacher was like, oh, he just can't seem to pay attention in class. He's always like talking over their students. He, he just, you know, running around, you know, whatever, not listening, whatever the story was. Yeah, whatever it was. And I was like, mm, there's something there. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And, um, and I, I saw him at, at lunch in the cafeteria one day. And he had silent lunch, which I don't understand for a six-year-old, but moving on. Yeah. Um, he was sitting by himself at the lunch table. And um, I just went and I, and I was helping open <laughs> the milk cartons. But I, I passed him and I decided to sit down next to him. And I was like, hey, like, how's your day going? And he just stared at me blankly, just like mad. And I think it was because I was an adult. And um, also because he was supposed to be silent. Also because he was supposed to be silent. <laughs> but I think it, I, whatever. Anyway, so he wasn't feeling it. He wasn't feeling He wasn't it. feeling it. And he just sits staring blankly. And I'm like, how's your lunch? And he's not responding. And then I go, man, I just, sometimes I just want to play football, you know? And he was like, huh? And I was like, I just love football. You know, just like running around, throwing a ball. And he was like, I, I play football. <laughs> oh, really? I was like, are you fast? I don't know, are you fast? He was like, yeah, I'm really fast. I'm so fast. <laughs> I'm like really fast. I'm probably faster than, than your brother. He, I, didn't, I hadn't even said I had a brother. He was like, I'm probably faster than your brother. And I was like, okay. And I'm like really connecting to this yeah. kid about football. <laughs> and I just wondered, like in that moment, I... And he wasn't talking before. And like in that moment, I was like wondering, like, are we really trying to like connect right. to like young people in schools? And like, yeah. are we nurturing what really excites them? Like, like I think this kid was like just ex excited about playing and excited about strength and excited yeah. about, I mean, he was he was you know, clearly an athlete. Yep. And so I'm like, how can we focus on what excites people? And, 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 and nurture that instead of trying to like redirect energy, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, that, I mean, that's, yeah. That's so powerful. Like I, you know, and this is something, and I'm glad you brought this up and how it, how it can, you know, come to life in an educational context this is something we talk about a lot on the, on the podcast is how do we, how do we create an environment where young people can show up as our authentic selves? And I think, I think that you are evidence that it's important to see kids because you are somebody that by, by your own description, you grew up seeing in your family and in your community. And that has allowed you to take risks and to explore and to, and to find the things that really drive you where a lot of our kids haven't had those same experiences. How do we create that? And it makes me think of my mom, actually, my mom's a retired teacher and, um, you know, she's this white lady that was teaching, um, you know, English language development to uh, native Spanish speakers. And she had this one student, his name was Noe. And Noe would, um, every day, would write something really abstract, but really beautifully poetic in Spanish, and just leave it on her desk and just disappear. Like, after, so class is over, she's putting things away, and there are these little pieces. And she started to think, well, how can I 
nurture this thing that he obviously and he and he would like he wouldn't ever talk about it like she, yeah. she would ask him hey what about this he's like it's just on my road what I don't, you know, like, yeah. what, why are you asking um but what she eventually what it eventually led her to do was to merge english language development classes with ap spanish because yeah. she was like we have things that we there there are places where there's overlap and we have kids who have talent and we need to be able to give a place to nurture that and that actually it's really funny because i I've been here, done that with teaching. I left teaching after 23 years, but that remains like the number one reminder to me that your kids are giving you an opportunity to see them every single day. Every day, every day. And it's, it's, it's true that I did feel seen in my community, but I think sort of what, what, I I think what's interesting about it. about it. What's interesting about it was I, I, I certainly felt seen, I felt heard, but I didn't feel like I could be my full self when it came to like race mm. in, in school. Yeah. I felt seen, I felt heard, but I didn't describe myself as black until 2020. Okay. Like, I didn't have that reckoning until after my K-12 experience because I was trying so hard to assimilate with all of the people around me. So people were honoring what I was saying and they were honoring what I was like contributing, but not honoring like who I was and like how I appeared in the world. I was like, I I worked really hard. I, 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 um, like I said, was really involved in school, took a lot of honors and AP classes, but I was always one of at most three black students in those classes. So it always felt like I didn't fit that mold. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of like the expectation and all my friends were white throughout school and I always tried to assimilate with them. Um, and, and it wasn't until I got to college with a community of artists of color that I really felt like I could show up as myself um, fully. And I didn't, and I, you know, and it's like, it's something that I didn't even recognize right. after I left school that that was what was happening. Yeah. Um, being multiracial, it was like, I was just clinging to every ounce of whiteness in me in hopes to like survive and, and fit in. So I felt seen in terms of, uh, of, of what I was contributing yep not like in, in terms of what you could achieve like yeah. you know as, as a I, I would guess that academically you were a high achiever right I was. and you were driven to succeed yeah. in those ways but what I hear you saying is that when you look beyond the surface of performance and achievement that there were a lot of things there there was a fight going on inside of you that you tried to it, it's so wild because I feel like you're speaking to my experience as well and this is one of the things that makes me kind of sad about the year 2022 is that you know you're a person that just finished high school in the last few years I finished high school in the early 1990s and I was struggling with the same things you know I I clung to my whiteness man I really appreciate how you phrase that because you know there was always this voice in me that would tell me that I belonged in spaces because I had a white mom. It's like, my mom's white. I should be in these, y'all don't even know. I'm part white, I'm just like you. And, but despite growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, 
um, that made things, it made it really, um, it made it really challenging to navigate my neighborhood persona with my persona at school and, and how I dealt with that. And, you know, again, it wasn't until college that I started to experience a little bit of my own personal reckoning. Why do you think, what do you think it, so you said being around other artists of color made a big difference for you. What was that kind of coming to a place where you were more fully, because it sounds like a big part of it is also acknowledging yourself and showing up to yourself as yourself. Yeah. Um, what was that process like? Well, what is wild is like, it was, there was like one instant when it happened. Yeah. Like there was one moment where I just had this like epiphany. And it was when I was watching um, a senior acting major at Boston University. Her name is Danny Palmer. Look out for her. She's changing the world. She was, she said she graduated in 2020. And I was watching her um, senior acting thesis. And part of the senior acting thesis is that one, one part of it is a, is a movement piece. And for her movement piece, she brought in all of the black performers in the school of theater. And they did step and a lot of like traditional African dances and, 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 and hip hop. And they were just like, just up there being black and making art. And everyone was just so into it. Yeah. Um, and the audience was so responsive. Um, and, and it was just so um, truthful and, 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 and vibrant. And I just, and I was just seeing myself up there and like, and seeing myself in this art that was moving people um, in a way that other art, frankly, can't, <laughs> you know? Like, this is something unique um, to, to our community. And, and I was seeing it, and it was, the, it was, the, it was what closed her thesis. And I, I just, at the end, without, it was almost involuntary, I just shot to my feet and was just bawling. Wow. just bawling my eyes out oh, and um and the whole room stands it's here standing ovation and I was just I was overwhelmed it was like the first one I was like I have never been more proud to be black yeah. and more proud to be an artist and um it was because I had seen myself and all of these people on stage who were who were just moving people um um and it, it was it was just such an important moment and so transformative for me um, amazing. And I'd, I'd never felt so seen. And just after, and, and it was just after that moment, like everything changed for me. I started wearing my hair natural and big and curly and yeah. goofy, and I'd, I'd been straightening it since kindergarten. And wow. and I I um I wanted to learn more about my ancestry, and I I wanted to make art that was informed by my identity instead of like making art despite my identity. Mm. And, um, and it was just, it was so transformative and it happened like in an instant. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. That's like, that, that it's, it's amazing because I think for a lot of folks, there's this kind of gradual, oh yeah, I, I took an ethnic studies class, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. That's the way it was for me. Like I found my way through books and, you know, I went from being a senior in my AP U.S history class being told that there was no Hispanic American history classes because we didn't write. We're not illiterate people. He literally said this. Um, and to less than a year later, reading the great works of, um, of people like 
you know, Norma Cantu and Gloria Saldua and Arturo Islas and, you know, those kinds of things and realizing that there were books written by brown people um, in in the region where I grew up. And so, but that the way you share this story is almost like that. That's beautiful. I, I love it. It's it's going to resonate for a while, I think. Um, I was going to ask you, um, you know, the role of poets in social justice work, but I think I'd, I'd rather just ask more generally of why do we, why do we need art in justice work and in liberation work? Like, I, I want to hear that from you because I, because I think we need art, like spoiler, but why do we need it? I think because it moves people, like literally, physically, and socially. It's like, I think the, the sort of like demand for art has increased in activism. Yeah. I think it's always been there and, it's, mm. and, and it has always been a part of sort of like the plight of marginalized people. Like when people are suffering, they sing, you know, like that is where a lot of, of, of spirituals come from. It's where a lot of like traditional storytelling comes from, you know, it's like when people are suffering, they sing, they dance. Yeah. Um, um, because it's just, it's what our bodies want to do. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I think it, it really connects with activism in a way that I think a lot of people don't recognize. Um, uh, when when I, I I did Bleeding Red, White, and Blue at, uh, at another rally in, in, in Sugar Hill, Georgia. And um, and I just remember this moment of, of community after we um, finished sort of like, there were like the speakers and then we were gonna go march. And we all just like came to like we, after I finished the piece, we all just came together and we're just crying and feeling with each other. And then, and, and like, and I think that that moment of community and emotion was like what made us need to march and move. Um, and, and, and we just like stormed the streets of Sugar Hill, Georgia with our oh, size and that's right. fire in an us. An army of artists. Yeah, an army an army of artists. Of artists. we've got any, you know, it, it really, it really lights the fire in people. And, um, and there's a reason people always want like spoken word and music yeah. at like business conferences. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like and like educational events because it moves people yeah. it's i think it is what makes people take action a lot of the time because they feel motivated they feel inspired they feel connected they feel human yeah. um like art is human i think that's why it's so important to activism yeah um, and and but i think mostly because like inevitably art will move people in some way um, especially music and, and, yeah. and spoken word. Yeah, thank you. I, th I think too, the, the way I would also say it is that really, you know, um, my, my friend Brooke Brown, um, who Washington State Teacher of the Year, the same year that I was for Colorado, um, cites the book Octavia's Brood. And she talks about how social justice work is science fiction work. I also think social justice work is a creative artistic process. Like totally. you're, you have to be able to tell a story in a way that resonates with people. And so to your point about music and poetry, you have to be able to create. I, mean, I think this is why like Afrofuturism is such a powerful medium, both in music and visual art, because what you're doing is you are imagining and conceptualizing a world that doesn't exist yet as if it's 
been here forever, right? And the ability to to visualize in concrete ways what a better world looks like, um, I think is really powerful. And then in my in my PhD program, a lot of like what we talk about is the power of testimonials and counter storytelling. And so when you share your pieces, and and we'll do that in a second, um, <laughs> when you share your pieces, I think there's a storytelling uh, aspect to it. There's a narrative that you are contributing to the world that the world needs to hear. And um, and I think it's such a powerful thing. So, um, so um, wow, there, there's just so much um, to think about. Like it it echoes of of my daughter's college essay that she's working on, which kind of ends with this whole idea that art is for everyone. She writes about how her um, she's learned the three most important things she needs to learn about people from working at a contemporary art museum and watching how people come together over art and talking to people about it and just seeing that it activates something in everybody, just as kind of you've said, and which is why we need to make it there for everyone. Um, Bill and Lyric Turner, I feel like we could go for hours. There's so much, so much more that um, that I would want to ask you and, and get your ideas on. Um, before we get you out of here, could you treat the audience to one of your pieces? I would love to. Um, oh my gosh, how, this is beautiful. How does race in the classroom sound? Yo, it's that's beautiful. It's what whatever you have that that you are proud of of and that this audience needs here so here here we go the poet queen valen lyric turner race in the classroom in a world so full of color why would i choose to be colorblind with all the blue in the sky and the green in my eyes and the orange of a monarch butterfly, why would I choose to be colorblind? See, so many teachers have said to me in an effort to promote inclusivity, I don't see color. An otherwise harmless statement, but when it comes to race, it's not quite the same as you think. What you mean is that you love all of your students all the students you have the capacity to serve, but in actuality, your students are not all treated equally. And they're also different colors. The last thing you want to do when it comes to race is erase the things that make us unique. Erase a piece of what we see staring back at us. It's not about not seeing color. It's not about negating it. It's about celebrating it and raising the voices of Black authors, Latina activists, AAPI heritage, Indigenous existence, but resisting the single narrative, resisting the story that Africa is one big territory with nothing but huts and famine. It's examining our own biases, our own prejudice and accepting that we are not immune to making mistakes so make them then take them as an opportunity to learn because isn't that what we're here to do isn't that the spirit we're following it's exhausting being young and black in the country we're living in your students are exhausted but not giving in when it's been 400 years you learn to cope. So I hope you take their hands and make an effort to understand and see color. Then read about it. Go to BSU meetings. Be about it, meaning apply what you're learning. 
and don't rely on the one POC in your class to carry their entire community on their back. Don't ask them to preach, but allow them to speak their truth if they so choose and use their name. Even if it's hard to pronounce, announce your allyship. Wave it like a flag across the room. You have the opportunity to make your space a safe one. So take it and name racism when you see it. It's not teasing. It's feeding the beast of white supremacy. So seize the moment to dismantle the hate and educate. It's what you do best. Address the uncomfortable. Lean into what is difficult to talk about because it all starts with conversations, hard ones. We must talk about redlining, talk about healthcare inequalities, talk about employment disparities, talk about hair and how all hair types are professional. Racism is not conceptual. It is real and it is perpetual. It is not political, but it is critical that you use your audience to promote tolerance. Talk about it. Read about it and be about it. See color, then use it to paint a better future for your students. <laughs> oh man, I'm snapping. I'm doing the snap. <laughs> I think that's what we're supposed to do. That's such a beautiful piece. And I, I, I think that that piece needs to be professional development um, for every teacher out here trying to trying to teach our kids. Um, I think that's a great place to conclude our conversation today. Valen Lyric Turner, how do people find you, find your work, support the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, great ways. Connect with me on Instagram um, at Valen Turner at V-A-L-Y-N Turner and on Twitter at Valen Lyric underscore T. Um, and there are ways to connect with me from there as well. My works are on YouTube um, under Valen Turner. So um, so, so thrilled to have been here. So oh, always man. excited to talk to you. Um, this was great. Thank you so much. This was amazing. And um, I really, I just really appreciate you speaking your truth in this, um, on this platform, in this app. <laughs> and, um, and just really wishing you all the success and all the best as you continue to pursue this dream uh folks we'll be back with another episode but for now oh this is the part where you and i say stay dope together all right okay. so, so i'll give you a little bit of a of a lead and then we'll like try to get it so for the for the poet queen Velen lyric turner my name is gerardo muñoz we're telling you on this halloween to uh stay piratey uh stay creative stay speaking your truth stay sharing your story stay seeing color and above all, make sure that you always stay, stay dope, dope y'all. <laughs>